This podcast is brought to you by the Government Art Collection and is supported by an educational programme grant from the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art. In November 2011, the British Embassy in Tehran was stormed by protesters. Works of art from the Government Art Collection, including the portrait of Queen Victoria and that of Fatali Shah, suffered considerable damage. How did the events unfold? What happened to the works of art? I'm Laura Popovicu and in this episode I'm joined by a direct witness to this dramatic incident. Sir Dominic Chilcott was the British ambassador to Tehran for six weeks only when his posting was ended by the attack on the embassy. He studied philosophy and theology before becoming a career diplomat. He joined the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in 1982 and has served in Sri Lanka, United States, Dublin and now Turkey. Our discussion about diplomacy and his posting in Tehran took place from his new office in Ankara. Sir Dominic, what do you think makes a good diplomat? I think as a diplomat, you need to be curious about other cultures and other countries. And you need to be able to build empathy with other people, I think, to do the job well. Because after all, as a diplomat, you are having to interpret your own government's policies to your host government and host country, and also describe what your host country is doing in a way that makes sense back to people in Whitehall. And I think if you don't have any empathy for the country that you're in, or you lack curiosity about them, you're likely to be rather superficial in the way that you do that key intermediary role. And philosophy and theology, I think, is a good subject for engaging curiosity. I think philosophy, obviously, it's about, you know, it can be about um, some of the most uh, important questions about, you know, why humanity is here and, and why we are as we are. And what it's all about, what is it for? Um, and I think theology is helpful because, um, I mean, the theology I did at university was entirely Christian theology. It wasn't comparative theology. But nonetheless, immersing yourself in a major religions' mode of thought is very useful when you're in other cultures with different religions because I think you can begin to understand why it is perhaps people who live in countries that, that are more obviously pious or more obviously religious, why it is that people are as they are, because you have some of that background yourself. How much preparation does each posting require and what does it consist of? I think there's a question about how much a posting requires and how much time you actually have. I've been uh, in different situations. So before I went out to Sri Lanka as the High Commissioner, I think I left my job in London on a Friday and I was in Sri Lanka on the following Monday or Tuesday. So in that case, I had very little time to do much other than do a bit of reading that I could do in my spare time while I was still doing quite a busy job in London. The other side of the coin is before coming here, I had uh, over a year between finishing my posting in Dublin and coming to Ankara. I went back to London and I... I had uh, an intensive course of Turkish language training and at the same time quite a lot of time to go and see people and talk about um, our policy towards Turkey and our cooperation and partnership with the Turks. 
and understand those issues better before coming out here. We are pretty serious in our diplomatic service about the importance of language skills, the, you know, the language of, the, of your host country, and that does make a difference. I think beyond making all the contacts that you can make in Whitehall with the experts who deal with the country yourself, with the country you're going to, and the language training that you do, which can be very you know, full-time and all-absorbing, um, then I think we're expected to read as much as we can um, of the literature, of the history, of uh, contemporary events about the country that you're going to. What do you remember about your first day as British ambassador to Tehran? My first day was more full of incident than I would have expected. So I arrived at the embassy in Tehran, having tried to get to Tehran twice before, but been told the day before I was due to get on an aeroplane by the Iranians that it was a difficult time for me to arrive and I should postpone my journey. I think they were people in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs who were very nervous about the arrival of a new British ambassador after a gap of uh, maybe nine months in the wake of the Green Revolution in Iran. So uh, it was third time lucky for me when I eventually got on a plane and the Iranians didn't say, don't come. They said nothing, so I, I was able to get there and arrive. I got into the office in the morning and all of a sudden the, there was an alarm uh, over the tannoy and we had an intruder in the compound. And it turned out that somebody had scaled the outer wall of the compound um, with some Molotov cocktails and thrown two or three of them um, at, a, at some outbuildings that we had. It didn't do any real damage, but it made a bit of a bang and there was a bit of a flame. And then he skipped back over the wall and ran away. And uh, I thought, oh, well, that's all you know, rather tiresome. And, uh, but people who'd been in the embassy much longer than me said that someone would have thought about it and they just want, they don't want you to feel too comfortable. And, um, and looking back on it and looking back at what subsequently happened, maybe, maybe they had a point. But like any first day in a, in a new mission, you spend most of your time walking around, um, familiarizing yourself with your new uh, environ and meeting the new people and saying hello to them and, and trying to build uh, some sort of rapport with them. And you have one formal bit of business normally, which is to go and call on the, the head of the protocol in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And it's his or her job um, uh, to receive a copy of your letters of credence, your credentials, which is the, you know, your authority signed by Majesty the Queen. Not the original version, but the, a copy of the version. And once you've done that, uh, the head of the chief of protocol will then tell you what you're, how, what you're allowed to do as ambassador. Uh, until such time as you formally hand over your credentials to the head of state and you can then use your full powers. What were your impressions of the British residence building and the works of art on display? Well, uh, the residence is magnificent. It was clearly built in the second half of the 19th century to impress the Persian Empire at the time. So it's making a very, very big statement. And the residence has a fabulous garden as well. And uh, it's set in a very large compound right in the centre of town. So, you know, it's a very valuable uh, piece of real estate. And the art in the residence, when I was there at least, it was fairly traditional, um, kings and queens and, 
and some Persian art as well. It worked extremely well in the public spaces of the residence, you know, large rooms with high ceilings and big windows, um, you know, very grand aspect to it all. I mean, they added to this sense that the residence gave of um, status and, and to some degree power. In an interview you gave in December 2011, you described the demonstrations as noisy affairs with lots of chanting and maybe some stone throwing. Can you recount how this noise unfolded on the day of the attack? I remember it reasonably well. I mean, we knew there was going to be a demonstration because we had been told by the police there would be one. And the embassy had a standard operating procedure when there was a demonstration to be held outside the embassy that we um, allowed all the so-called non-essential staff and the local staff to stay away and stay at home. And meanwhile, the rest of us who were working in the embassy, we would stay in the embassy, but we, you know, we, we readied ourselves that if anything should happen, we had, to, for example, all the kind of fire hoses unfurled, ready to go. Um, and uh, we knew that if necessary, we could, um, you know, shut the doors of the um, uh, embassy office and lock ourselves in or whatever we might need to do to keep ourselves safe. And the uh, windows that faced outwards all had very heavy metal grills over them to protect them from stones and, and what have you. So I think I, uh, on the day the, uh, the, the embassy got attacked, I felt pretty confident that we had faced many uh, demonstrations before, many noisy ones that involved stone throwings, and the police had always held people back, and our other physical defences had been sufficient to keep everybody safe. So although the, there was the noise from the crowd was pretty loud, the chanting was pretty aggressive, and you could sort of feel the emotion, even if you couldn't understand the words of what was being said about us by the demonstrators. Um, I wasn't too concerned. Then when the stones started being thrown at us, and you felt them hit the building, and the building shake, rather to my surprise. They kept that up for the best part of an hour or so before they actually launched themselves over the gates and over the walls um, at us. But for that first hour, it was a little bit, it was a little bit like the opening scenes in Argo. I don't know whether you've seen the film Argo about the attack on the American embassy in 1979. But then when it did kick off, rather like the Americans in Argo, we were very, we were taken by surprise. The works of art were all in the residence. There was nobody in it when the demonstrators came over the gates and the, and the walls and began vandalising the compound. The residence was clearly somewhere that stood for something, as indeed the art stood for something. It stood for British power. Of course, it was all locked up, so they had to smash the doors down to get in. And they also saw the art as what you might call a legitimate target for, for their purposes. And they slashed quite a bit, with, obviously with knives, they slashed quite a lot of the, the oil paintings that we had, the grand paintings of kings and queens of Britain. And indeed, there was a painting of one of the shahs that was also slashed. So, yeah, I mean, they, they in their anger at the United Kingdom, they were having a go at, at Britain's prestige. And I think when they were slashing the paintings, the art, it was all part of... Um, trying to, um, you know, as I say, sort of slap Britain and its and its global reputation, and show us that you know we were we were going to pay a price for our 
our position in international affairs. Sir Dominic, in November 1970, the British Embassy in Tehran was presented with an album containing photographs of Churchill, Stalin and Roosevelt at the Tehran Conference in 1943. Some capture the preparations for Churchill's 69th birthday party at the embassy on the 30th of November 1943. Could you tell me about the way in which you had wanted to mark this historical event? The 30th of November uh, was the day in which the embassy got attacked. So we had planned to have a dinner that day um, because, again, we were thinking of how can we use this wonderful residence that we have, how can we get people in uh, so that we can enjoy the building and at the same time, you know, make it work a bit for its living. And um, it's always nice to be able to pin uh, an event in a residence on a moment in history. And um, the Tehran Conference of 1943 was too good an opportunity to miss. Churchill had a birthday party in the residence at the same dining table that we continued to use. And we had photographs of the event, you know, going back to 1943. For me, at least, and I think for my colleagues, it felt like an opportunity we didn't want to miss. So we invited various Iranian people whom the embassy had had some contact with over the recent past and a number of foreign diplomats, ambassadors. And we were going to try and replicate the dinner because we'd had the menus from 1943. We were going to do the whole thing from, you know, the menus, the, the room, the table. I, don't, I think we even had a cake organised, a birthday cake. Uh, we may even we may even be prepared to sing "Happy Birthday, Dear Winston" or something. But anyway, it began falling apart before the, the attack on the embassy because our Iranian guests all rang up. There weren't very many of them, but those that were all rang up in the course of the morning saying, "We're very sorry, but we're we've been told we shouldn't attend." So we lost all our Iranian guests. So we only had a few um, foreign diplomats still going to come. We, you know, having done all the work, though, we were still going to have the dinner. That was the plan. And then that afternoon. The attack on the embassy happened and we all had to be evacuated. And we still had somebody who rang up, actually, quite amusingly, later that evening saying, um, is the dinner still going ahead? And we had to say, uh, no, circumstances have somewhat changed. So, it, so in the end, it never happened. But, um, you know, it would, have, it would have been quite fun to have done it. What documents associated with this event did you find in the embassy archive? Uh, obviously, there were the photographs, quite a lot of photographs of uh, Churchill's birthday, um, and they were very interesting to you know pick out the various personalities uh, who had come there. Um, and then there were some documents, um, there were records of the Tehran Conference itself, the British records. The big decision taken at the Tehran Conference in 1943 was the decision uh, by the Allies at the request of uh, of the Russians and Stalin that we should now open the second front by invading France, uh, northern France, uh, and that we'd be doing so in Normandy in, in the summer of 1944, following year. And of course, this it's hard to think of anything that could have been more sensitive or secret than the decision that this was going to happen. Alas, when the attack happened, these documents were in my office and uh, we had to abandon the office eventually. So I had to leave the documents. One photograph from this album shows all the guests engaged in conversation at the table in the dining room. In the background is a portrait of Edward VII, a silent witness to a historical moment. In 2011, 
The same portrait was sitting at the forefront of the events as an active player that was being silenced and defaced by protesters. How would you describe these two contrasting scenes in which the protagonist is a work of art? Well, um, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, they, neither time was easy. I mean, you have to say the Tehran Conference in 1943 was not an easy time for anybody in the United Kingdom. Um, and although Iran wasn't a belligerent in the Second World War, um, nonetheless, you know, it was conscious that there was a huge global conflict going on all around it. So it wouldn't have been an easy time for, for the Iranian people either. So although the birthday party itself was a moment of relief uh, in a period of, uh, you know, the most awful calamity of the Second World War, nonetheless, I think, you know, Edward VII would have, you know, were he able to look through his portrait of what was going on, he would have, might have enjoyed the birthday party, but he would have been very conscious of the weight of responsibility on the shoulders of Churchill and the other world leaders. And he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have known uh, that it was all going to end with the Allies winning convincingly. And then in Europe, at least, the creation of the European Union as an organization which meant that, at least so far, war would never recur on that scale again on the continent of Europe. So some good would come out of it all. But that wasn't, I think, at all apparent in 1943 to people. So I think the backdrop was quite serious and somber. I think, um, you know, after the attack uh, on us, um, the uh, the overall global global situation obviously was, was greatly improved over the way things were in the 1940s. But the incident that Edward VII would have been looking at would have been, I think, uh, you know, clearly very disturbing. And, you know, to have such a breakdown in the relationship between two countries would be very upsetting. In 2011, you made the point that during the attack, any receptacle of written information was removed and crushed by protesters. You found yourself between dispersed fragments of words and fragments of images. Eight years on, while still showing physical scars as reminders of the past, some of these fragments have been pieced together. The portrait of Queen Victoria has been restored, and so has the portrait of Fatali Shah, while the portrait of Edward VII has been replaced with another one. What is, in your opinion, the power of images in the face of history's challenges? I think these particular pictures derive their power from the context in which they are shown. And the residents in Tehran like the best historic residences that we have in British embassies around the world, uh, are often the building in which the story of the relationship between Britain and that country is best preserved. And certainly, I think the residence in Tehran now does tell you a very interesting story. It tells you a story of 19th century splendor. It tells you the story in the rooms and in the books it contains and in the pictures on the walls of the, uh, the great game, the rivalry with Russia in order to protect the routes to India. We've already mentioned about the Tehran Conference in 1943, uh, but of, there was also action in the First World War in, in that part of the world. And there's a Commonwealth Wargrave Cemetery in our northern Tehran embassy compound. And all these things are reflected in the residence in different ways, including in the portraits and the pictures. Um, they, as you said, they are 
pictures that have been damaged and repaired, so they have to some degree scars of the incident itself. But they're also survivors, those pictures. So they're also, I think, an indication that um, there's an endurance to the relationship, that there are moments that where things break down, um, but actually even when things are broken down, things can be repaired, relationships are capable of being repaired, and life goes on. So I think uh, it's an important message for all of us in diplomacy is not to be captured too much by the moment and become, as it were, the kind of prisoner of uh, immediate events and try and hold on to a longer view. And I think the fact we've had pictures of former kings and queens and shahs that have been in the residence for a long time and pictures that are recently introduced but nonetheless are part of a collection that's an enduring collection that's associated uh, with the embassy and with the relationship with the Iran through good times and difficult times means that uh, you know we can continue to think that um, you know the situation in which we find ourselves at this moment may not be the circumstance of the future and that things may may develop and become more positive so I think it's a reason also for being hopeful. What was going through your mind as your plane back to London took off the next day? Oh, um, <laughs> uh, what was going through my mind? Well, uh, it was a little bit dramatic, actually, when the actual the, the moment of takeoff was quite a dramatic moment. I didn't realise at the time quite how dramatic it was. But you may know that uh, William Hague was um, all set to announce in the House of Commons the measures that we were going to take in response to the attack on our embassy, essentially the expulsion of, of Iranian diplomats from London. Uh, but he didn't want to do any. He didn't want, he didn't want to say anything until we were safely clear of Iranian airspace, uh, and and you know we couldn't be held back. We'd had quite a trying time getting on, getting out of the city and uh, persuading the Iranians to let us fly out of the country at all. Then in my case, I was talking to London, to the crisis centre in London on the telephone, and they were very keen for me to keep the phone open, as it were. And so I was giving a kind of running commentary about, you know, we're, we're in our seats now, we're, um, or, or whatever it was. They, you can feel the full power on the engines, we're rolling down the runway, we've got wheels up, and quite enjoying that in a sort of way, if I'm being honest. What I didn't realise is this commentary that I was giving was being broadcast inside the crisis centre back in London. And when I said, we're on wheels up, we're in the air, there was apparently a spontaneous round of applause by all our colleagues back in the Foreign Office because they were genuinely worried. But I think after the aeroplane took off, we were clear of Iranian airspace. And um, I think my main concern as the, as the ambassador was, that the, you know, was for the welfare, obviously, of my colleagues and the staff and families. Uh, and um, because, again, one of these great ironies, there was a, um, I think it was an immigration officer's strike in Heathrow on the day we were, we were leaving Iran. So we couldn't fly straight back to London because, you know, who knows how difficult it would have been to have actually, you know, got through the airport when we'd arrived. So the Foreign Office arranged for us to have a 24-hour stopover in, um, in Dubai on the way back. And uh, so we all gathered in Dubai, in this you know, perfectly nice uh, hotel in Dubai, um, after the two plane loads of people had arrived. And um, there was this, uh, in my case, anyway, certainly a sort of slightly strange 
feeling of having been in the thick of this attack on the embassy with smoke and flames and things being smashed up and noise and anger and rocks being thrown, suddenly to find yourself only a few hours later um, sitting in a you know quite comfortable hotel in the most kind of Pacific surroundings you could imagine. So that was all quite strange. We knew we had quite a lot of work uh, ahead of us because um, none of us had had time to go back and pick up any luggage from our or belongings from our houses and homes. So we really only came out in the clothes we were wearing and whatever we could you know, grab very, very quickly. For some of the younger staff, they'd begun their adult lives, you know, perhaps, the, perhaps their marriages, uh, and this was their first posting. And so almost everything they had in the world had gone out with them to Tehran, and they were leaving all that behind. So they had to be evacuated. So I think, you know, that was quite tough for people. How do you start again after such an experience? Well, I mean, it's surprisingly straightforward because it is in the nature of diplomatic life anyway that you move country every three or four years. Um, Of course, generally it's done in a more orderly way and more predictable fashion. When we came back, we helped out a bit, those of us... um, who were required to help out a bit in the immediate aftermath of the attack on the embassy. Um, But after a while, there wasn't too much for us to do, uh, but still related to Iran. And in my case, I was encouraged to bid for another job as an ambassador somewhere. Um, And I was lucky enough to be sent to Dublin. So I came back, I think early December, I was back in London. And by April, Uh, I was off to Dublin to be ambassador there. And of course, as soon as you're picked to do your next job, you then immerse yourself as much as you can in preparing for that job. So you you don't forget what's happened, but you've got plenty of other things to think about. I mean, the office were were good about making sure that, you know, those of us who were upset or disturbed by what had happened had the the ability to go and see people and, and, and talk to them. And we were all assessed for whether or not we uh, were suffering any psychological trauma um, after the event. So, you know, we felt we were being well looked after. What will always remind you of Tehran? I think my memory of Tehran is really of the day-to-day uncertainty. Um, My wife and I had one expedition outside the city. We went to Esfahan, and um, I mean, Esfahan is a city of remarkable beauty. Uh, and we enjoy that immensely. And, and, you know, I suppose looking back at it now, I think of the kind of lost opportunity to do all the things I would have liked, we would have liked to have done together to have explored the country. So I think, yes, my, my images, I'm afraid, are really of lost chances rather than anything else. Thank you, Sir Dominic Chilcott. But not all was lost. Join me next time to find out how the two countries re-engage diplomatically. You'll hear about the restoration of the British residence building and the installation of a new display of works from the government art collection. Among these are contemporary works inspired by the poems of the 13th century mystic Rumi. When the body is shattered, the spirit lifts up its head.